Hello, welcome to the agronovations.com podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. This interview is a little bit longer than uh, some of the previous, most of the previous interviews that I've posted. Usually I uh, post them in two parts. This one wasn't quite long enough to post in two parts, but uh, it was a little bit longer than the traditional 25, 30 minutes that uh, I usually set aside for each podcast, but it's a great one. So please sit back and we'll get right into it and enjoy the podcast. Today we are with Richard Manning, uh, who is the author of several books and essays, including Against the Grain, How Agriculture Has Hijacked Civilization, Grassland, The History, Politics, Biology, and Promise of the American Prairie, and uh, the essay The Oil We Eat, Following the, uh, the Food Chain Back to Iraq. Richard, thanks for joining us today on the Agro-Innovations Podcast. Oh, thanks very much for having me. Uh, let's start with uh, some of the things that you've written about quite extensively, which is the development of agriculture and the transition from a hunter-gatherer society to a sedentary agricultural society. Uh, can you give us a brief summary of this transition and some of its key points? Well, that's probably the pivotal point in human history. I mean, it's it's when we became something different than what we had been for a very long time. Uh, if we were to mark our transition to humans, that's probably, you know, depending on where you put the mark, 300,000 years ago, 200,000, something on that order. And for a very short period of that, the last 10,000 years, we've been farmers, agriculturalists. For all of the rest of the time, 97, 98% of the time, we were hunter-gatherers. And why that's relevant is that we became what we are through evolution as hunter-gatherers, a very different mode of existence. Basically, we ate differently, much differently than we eat today. Uh, We lived differently. We were nomadic. We tended to wander around a lot. Um, We were not as organized. All those things were the conditions of our existence, and when you have conditions of your existence, you evolve. Not only that, the planet evolved with that sort of existence, in other words, wild systems, and we changed those to farm systems almost overnight, uh, 10,000 years ago. And so I regard that last 10,000 years as an experiment, almost. And the results of that are mixed, um, at best, at the very best, but that's, I think, the, the, the kind of the context for the discussion that we need to have today. Okay. Um, can you uh, talk about how agriculture has been a force and a mechanism in European imperialism and the conquest of indigenous cultures? Yeah, and it's kind of interesting in that it comes out most strongly in the European tradition. I mean, basically, there are three or four traditions of domestication, depending on which ones you look at, of around three or four different crops. Uh, certainly wheat, and that's the one we talk about the most, and I talk about the most, but also rice, which was the Asian domestication, corn, which was the Central American domestication, and potatoes. I mean, if we look at those four crops, they really explain pretty much all of human history. Well, European history is wound up in wheat. It's based in wheat agriculture, which was domesticated in the Middle East, and I think it's no accident at all that the Middle East is our most troubled spot on the planet today. Um, It's a direct result of this. But 
we all of these things have something in common. They're all annual grasses. Uh, humans are grass eaters. When we basically eat the seeds. We derive something like 70% of our nutrition from the seeds of grasses. And they're not only grasses, they're an interesting kind of grass. They're an annual grass, which means that they, they set seed every year and die. They're not perennial plants. So they, it's a kind of a, a minority strategy in the plant world. But as a result of that, they deplete the soil as opposed to build up the soil as most other plants do. And that's key. That is absolutely the bedrock fact of domestication, that we domesticated annual grasses that deplete the soil, and because they deplete the soil, we have to move on. So this, we, we raise wheat for a, a long time in a landscape, or not a long time at all, sometimes 10, 15 years. It's no longer capable of raising that wheat any longer, and so we move on. That simple fact was the engine of imperialism for Europe. I mean, and it started about 6,000 years ago, and it, it, it has never stopped or it didn't stop until about 1960 when we had really farmed all the new land. We'd move on as far as you could go onto anything that would raise wheat. Wheat was raising wheat. At that point, we adopted a somewhat different strategy of taking hydrocarbons, that is, chemical fertilizer, to replace that fertility in the soil. So we are now moving on to different lands. They're just oil-bearing lands as opposed to wheat-bearing lands. And so it was a different sort. But that fact that wheat, the annual grass, depleted the soil was the determining factor of imperialism, and it's what drove everything that, that came since. Now, the title of your book uh, is very compelling, How Agriculture Has Hijacked Civilization. Uh, how has agriculture hijacked civilization? Well, in, very, in the long terms we've been talking about here, thinking about it um, in biological terms, we say, well, you know, the humans conquered the world, and they did so as a result of agriculture and their ability to store food, so we could range all over the place. But in biological terms, it's every bit as accurate and as valid and as illuminating to say wheat conquered the world um, or dandelions because there are these this collection of species, this coalition of plants around wheat that are every bit as successful as humans are. And that's what counts in biology. If, you're, if you propagate and take over a new territory, you're a successful species. So wheat took over a new species, just as dandelions did, just as spotted nap wheat did, just as horses did. So there are a number of, of coalition, uh, or members of this coalition around plants and animals. And if you think of this for a while, it's every bit as accurate from the wheat's point of view. <laughs> I know that sounds strange, but think of it for a second. From the wheat's point of view, to say wheat domesticated humans because these plants use us to propagate their genes and spread their genes around the world. And so it's that necessity of that coalition that really determines how we live, the way we live, the fact that we're imperialistic, the fact that we farm, the fact that we plow, the fact that we burn hydrocarbons. And it's the demand of those annual grasses that is so deterministic, it's, so, it's such a driving force in humans, human civilization, it's almost accurate to say, or I think it is accurate to say, that the plants hijacked us. 
and that farming hijacked us in a way and made, converted humans to its own purpose. And so that's kind of the derivation of that. It's also an irony to say that at the same time because, of course, civilization itself, the concept is based in agriculture. In other words, what we think of as civilization, living in cities, writing, having leisure time, philosophy, cultural evolution, all those things are based in the fact that we were able to have that because of agriculture, because we had leisure time, because we could build cities, because we could raise armies. So agriculture, in a way, created civilization, but at the same time, it determined the flow of that civilization and the outlines of it. So it's interesting, this symbiosis that you describe between humans and plants. It's not the first time that I've heard it. Um, to what extent would you say that other crops have also sort of hijacked humanity, like things like the opium poppy or, um, you know, even tree crops and those sorts of things? Yeah, uh, those less so for a couple of reasons. And tree crops are the interesting ones in this. You know, so if we want to talk about apples or figs or nuts, um, those are perennials. So those aren't the annual grasses. They have a different set of demands. And interestingly enough, we were, we were to design sustainable agriculture. It would be based in perennial plants. And so you know, fruit trees, yeah, we would think about that a lot and how we make a living on fruits. Not only that, yeah, fruit trees are really pretty much an extension of hunter-gathering life. I mean, we ate a whole lot of fruit as hunter-gatherers as opposed to grain. And it's that very dense package of carbohydrates that exist in grain that, that determine the course of civilization. In other words, you can store it a long time. You can't store an apple a long, very long time. Um, you can raise armies on wheat. You can't do that. You can feed poor people on wheat. Uh, by and large, the poorest people on the planet are fed wheat or rice or corn, one of those three grains, because it's very cheap. And so you can, in effect, enslave people on grain, and you can't do that with, with things like apples or nuts. So it, 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 the comparison is quite interesting and illuminating, and those are kind of just the kind of add-on plants that we keep for rich people to eat. Essentially, I mean, if you look at apples today, for instance, so the ability to have a fresh apple is probably not much different than it has been through the history of human civilization. And it's always been the privileged people who had access to fresh fruits and vegetables. And of course, that's true today. You go to a Whole Foods Market or some, or even at a modern grocery store, we, the richest people on the planet, can have that. But if you go to a slum in India, no one can have an apple there or even any kind of fresh fruit. So they're very different. And, and it's illuminating to talk about those other kinds of plants. As far as opium goes, that's simply a narcotic, and yes, that's played an enormous role. And one of my favorite stories is there's an old blues song called Cocaine Blues, which sounds very modern, but it was gathered in something like 1900 in the Mississippi Delta. And it was the practice of the sharecroppers at the time to give the, the, their sharecroppers, their tenant farmers, cocaine. And so everybody was completely addicted to cocaine because it kept, it kept them working. Um, so that's only one notch away from the way sugar has been used through history. So those little add-on things help civilization uh, enforce its rules, but the main of civilization still rests on grain. Okay. You've also written extensively about the loss and potential recovery of grasslands and prairies. Uh, 
what are some of the key points about these vital ecosystems and how we manage them uh, that you think the listeners should should know about? Yeah, and and that gets right at the heart of the matter. The the fact that prairie is a very different animal. It's, um, and in fact, all other ecosystems. If we look at farming, the average cultivated field, and I mentioned soil depletion. What that really does is allow organic matter in the soil to decay. So if we look at prairie soils in the American Midwest that are now solely used to raise corn, when the settlers first came there, they had something like 9 to 10 to 12 percent organic matter. They're now down in the area of 5, 4 percent organic matter, and that's huge. I mean, that's an enormous change. And what is happening there is farming inevitably depletes organic matter. In the process, by the way, releasing carbon dioxide, which is another part of this story. But that stands in sharp distinction to every other ecosystem. And and a farming course is not an ecosystem. But every natural ecosystem, be it prairie, be it forest, be it even desert, adds organic matter to the soil. And the difference, of course, is perennial, perennial plants. So... Prairie is based in perennial plants, a grass that doesn't set seed every year, but in fact lives from year to year. And Usually there are two types of grasses in every prairie, a cold season and a warm season grass. Every prairie has some sort of legume in it, um, usually oh, uh, some sort of member of the pea family. And the, and the value of these things is they, they fix nitrogen in the soil. So they actually pull nitrogen out of the air to fertilize the whole business. And then everyone has a yellow composite sunflower of some kind. He has a yellow composite flower. And those things go together to do something called overyielding, meaning if you grow them separately, then they are less than they would be if you grow them all together. It's as simple as that. And that overyielding is what is really important and the principle we've lost in farming. So... It's permaculture, it can go on forever, it builds the soil, it produces far more biomass than farming does. And it's really where we need to get our instructions on where we go forward, by going back to the prairie, by understanding how it works, and by creating a farming that mimics that so we can go on indefinitely into the future. What is the relationship between fossil fuels and food? In the beginning, very little, because fossil fuels had almost nothing to do with anything up until mid-19th century with the Industrial Revolution. Uh, We tended to burn our stored carbon in wood, some coal that was right at the surface, that kind of thing. But uh, generally, we lived within pretty close to the current carbon budget. In other words, the amount of carbon that was laid down by photosynthesis every year by the sun falling on the land, capturing that energy, storing it as carbon, was what we burned and ate. But as um, we ran out of those sources and our population demands were larger than the ability of the sun to lay down that carbon every year, we looked for stored sources, fossil fuels, in effect. So things that were put down thousands and millions of years ago. Um, And so all of the human activity began running on that. We know that story real well, the Industrial Revolution. But also what happened at the same time is that farming ran up against its limits of arable land that I talked about earlier. We ran out of land. There was no new land to colonize. 
Well, we found out that we could artificially replace some of the carbon in the soil or some of the organic matter, some of the fertility, more to the point, in the soil, by using uh, uh, especially natural gas and converting it to fertilizer. So chemical fertilizers are largely based in natural gas. Not only that, we began using energy for things like tillage. And the other thing that has to happen in all farming is tillage. And tillage simply means that you're doing uh, the equivalent of a flood or a fire or something like that. You're creating a natural upheaval, a catastrophe, if you will, to kill all the other plants, and that favors annual grasses, which we've been talking about. So the combination of those two things meant that we had to use energy for tillage and energy for fertility, and then, of course, we built a global food system that transported that stuff all over the planet. All of those things combined meant that now we use something like 10 calories of hydrocarbon energy to produce one calorie of food. And so the consequence is when something like oil prices go up, gasoline prices go up, food prices go up, because they can now rest in the same equation because fuel and hydrocarbons are so heavily integrated into our global production system. Uh, also, could you talk about the thermodynamics of this? I mean, the, the energy efficiency of a system like this and, you know, what that means for sustainability? Yeah, the, the thermodynamics are, are, are relatively important um, just because combustion and all those things are pretty inefficient. And so we're using a lot of energy to, to heat the atmosphere, in effect, you know, as opposed to, to pull a tractor around. In other words, a lot of, a lot is wasted in heat, but a number of other issues. So, uh, but it looks efficient to us because we have those fossil fuels. But I, I think the important point in this goes back to the carbon cycling, which is, is far more important even than, and I think the one thing that's not recognized, but it will be increasingly recognized as, as we start to look at this, is that the other inefficiency in this that we're, we're ignoring, the other source of stored carbon energy that we're squandering here is that organic matter. Because by allowing it to decay out of the soil, we not only lose fertility, we release carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So every single farm field is a source of carbon dioxide. In other words, it is contributing to global warming just by the fact that it's farmed the very tillage of it. Every single natural ecosystem sequesters carbon, puts carbon back in the soil. So not only are we running really against the, uh, against the grain of, of, of biology by just domesticating annual grasses, we have reversed the carbon flow of the planet in farming. That is the key distinction in all farm fields. The energy flow is in the opposite direction what it should be. We should be storing energy into the ground we're releasing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere instead. And there's a simple equation that says why that's true. And as a result, farming contributes to global warming beyond just its energy use. And also you've uh, talked about some of the work of, I believe, David Pimentel, who's uh, actually looked at how many uh, energy calories are in one calorie of uh, food, like a you know, a piece of bread or something like that. Sure. Uh, could you could you talk a little bit about that and, and what the significance of that is? Yeah, and, and that if we look at long term, what that says is that we now, and I said this earlier, we take something like 10 calories of hydrocarbon energy, artificial energy, to produce a calorie of food. And 
that reverses what was true throughout history. So traditional farmers still, to this day, people who are in primitive farming conditions, use something like a calorie to produce 10 calories of food. Well, that's our biggest energy use in the planet. And so where this becomes, this argument goes to its absurd state is when we go into ethanol, which Pimentel has written about, and essentially said that if you, if you calculate all the energy costs going into a gallon of ethanol fuel to put in your SUV, in other words, you, the, the cost of the fertilizer, and I mean the energy cost, not the money, money cost, um, the fact you're releasing, no, the, let's leave carbon out for a second, um, the tractor fuel, the transportation, the, the milling cost to dry out all this stuff to, to, you know, to get the liquid out of it, to make the ethanol in the first place. If you were to take all of this energy together right down to the energy to make the tractor in the first place, then all of that energy combined would be greater than the energy you gain from the ethanol fuel. And that's very much like the rest of our food system, that it's really a way of getting energy, carbohydrates, which humans run on. But in fact, we're burning far more energy to get that calorie of energy that in, the, in the first place. So it's become absurd in the, name of the, in the name of efficiency. That's the real irony of it. So how is it possible that such a thing could happen? I mean, have we all been hoodwinked by... Uh, big corporations or are, is this just kind of the garden party before everything goes downhill? Uh, wh I mean, what's your take on this in terms of, you know, it seems almost inconceivable that we would actually get to this point, yet here we are. Yeah, exactly, and, and but not if you think about it. And I think the biggest answer to that is it happens so slowly. Um, so if you were a guy from outer space 10 years ago with all the wisdom that we have today, and you could look at that guy domesticating wheat the first time. You could predict this outcome. You could say, this is going to happen because of this fatal flaw in wheat or in corn or in rice, all those annual grasses. Because of this fatal flaw, you will create imperialism, the need for energy, exhaust all your arable land, all those things. Now, it's going to take 10,000 years. So okay, that's a lot of time. And because we, that was so far in the future, then you, you, people have known about this for a long time, but you, you, you have a hard time getting humanity to listen to something that's a problem that's 10,000 years, forget about that, global warming today, 20 years in the future, people won't listen to a problem. When we have urgent problems in front of us today, and one of those urgent problems is hunger. People are hungry today. So you say, well, okay, we'll put this on the back burner to revise this system to make a better system, and meanwhile we will live day to day, and that's what we do. And so you really don't have to go all the way to agriculture to say how we're able to be, live in denial and put off problems. Look at global warming. We've been talking about it seriously in this society for 20 years at least. The science has been credible to say we are going to make our planet unlivable in a very short time, a century if we don't do something. Well, for 20 years, we haven't done anything, and we've known that. So agriculture really is just part of that whole situation. Uh, what is nitrogen saturation, and why should we be concerned about it? Well, nitrogen use is, is it's something like increased sixfold with the beginning of the... Um, uh, the, the, the green revolution, so in other words, industrial farming. That's because of nitrogen fertilizers, because we use so much nitrogen to grow things uh, that 
that now we are see a six-fold increase. And so, uh, you know, we, we know, we think in terms of the carbon cycle on the planet, but there's also a nitrogen cycle on the planet. And it's now true that humans cre- contribute more nitrogen cycle, more to the nitrogen cycle than the planet itself does. In other words, our contribution to the nitrogen flowing into the atmosphere is greater than geology's contribution. We now outstrip the planet in the ability to do that. And some of that nitrogen gets used to fertilize plants, true enough, but it's, it's a pretty messy process, and plus farmers tend to overuse nitrogen, as, so they're using something like five times as much as they really need to use just because it's cheap insurance against crop failure. As a result of that, nitrogen tends to run off. I mean, and so it's, it's highly soluble. Anytime water hits in, so we think of the floods in the Midwest this year, for instance, all of that wash nitrogen off. Um, nitrogen now is accumulating in um, uh, our, our biggest rivers, or all of our rivers, I should say, not only from farming, but things like lawn waste and people, uh, golf courses and lawns. And it's causing what's called eutrophication in streams, which means that nitrogen is a fertilizer, of course, and once in the water, it also fertilizes, which creates algae blooms. The algae depletes the oxygen that's in the water. Uh, Fish die, literally, because there's no water left. So we have something called a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. It's solely the result of nitrogen in farming. Um, And it's just killed off literally county-sized areas of the ocean are um, uh, sterile because there's no oxygen left. Uh, it's called epoxy once it, it gets that far. But nitrogen also combines with um, some of the natural chemicals in the soil and so forth to produce nitrous oxide, nitrogen dioxide, a number of global warming gases that, that, that cycle into the atmosphere. So by using so much nitrogen, we've created almost a parallel situation to carbon. And those two chemicals together are both contributing heavily to global warming, not to mention the destruction of the planet and things like that, wiping out other, other ecosystems. Why is it that we, we, we hear so little about nitrogen? Uh, you know, it seems like every day now we hear about carbon and carbon emissions and being carbon neutral. And I've never heard anyone talk about being nitrogen neutral or, you know, uh, nitrogen sequestration or anything like that. Uh, where are we missing the ball on this? Well, it's, it, it's, it's almost like carbon. In fact, if you think 10 years ago, we didn't hear about carbon either. What we heard about were toxic chemicals. Everybody worried about toxics. So the slightest bit of anything that was thought to be a carcinogen or could be toxic on any level got all the headlines, and that's what everybody worried about. And no one would think about carbon because it was an ordinary garden variety, um, simple, inorganic compound that was in everyone's body. And we, we couldn't think of how that could possibly pollute. Well, over that 10 years, we've, we've built some awareness about global warming with carbon, and so now people talk about the carbon footprint, but that's a very new thing. And I think something analogous is going to happen with nitrogen. I mean, people have known about the nitrogen problem for 20 years, but now that we're able to talk about carbon dioxide in the terms we can today, we'll be able to talk about nitrogen very soon because it's, it, it's a parallel problem. It's, it's directly the same thing. There's also something sort of mitigating against that, which is that nitrogen is used to make things green. I mean, and green is what we think of when we say environmental policy. You know, you're a greenie, you're uh, the Green Party, and all those things. Green is thought to be good. 
And so how could it possibly be bad if we have an excess of this chemical that makes everything nice and lush and green? Well, it is bad. But you see the kind of thinking that has to evolve over this. And it, and it runs along with the yeoman myth kind of thing that, that farming is, farmers are the salt of the earth. Well, they are good people. I mean, I'm not saying they're not. But the point is that we think raising green crops is a good thing. And so we're able, we can almost ignore everything else, else that goes on because that's where our bias lies. That's a, at, the, at the basis of our culture. One of the things that uh, is very apparent and evident on the landscape of this country are the cornfields. If you drive across it uh, at this time of the year, you'll just see um, miles upon miles of it. Uh, and this is all obviously related to what you're talking about. Uh, how is this overproduction of corn related to obesity in the United States? It's directly related. and. And there's, a, there's some wonderful curves. Uh, you know, I, I love graphic things, and you could make a nice graph that uh, graph obesity, which is the issue you're talking about, and it's a relatively new phenomenon. It begins roughly in the 70s, mid-70s. Well, that mid-70s is also when we uh, uh, we didn't, but uh, Archer Daniels Midland did perfect production of high fructose corn syrup. And if you graph the production of high fructose corn syrup against obesity, you'll find almost twin lines that they go right together. Um, it's because we had a surplus of corn. We had so much of it, that, and so many farmers depended on it. They had to figure out some way to use it, and the way they used it was in high fructose corn syrup and processed foods, which happened to be cheap foods, and so has income... Uh, as we have created a bigger and bigger pool of poor people in this country, we're able to feed them very cheap food that are that's marketed through all sorts of slick campaigns. And we know what those are. That's our culture today. And so those things went together to make obesity. But virtually every processed food has high fructose corn syrup in it. Um, and then coincident to that, there are a number of other grain products that show up, uh, everything from Dunkin' Donuts to hamburger buns to the way our beef is raised. And our beef doesn't need, need to be nearly as fat as it is, but it is as a result of feeding it corn. Um, it's because we have so blasted much corn that uh, that we need to get away, uh, figure out a way to get rid of it. Um, Wendell Berry, the poet, once once wrote an essay called "What Are People For?" And the answer to that, in, in, in our culture today, well, they're, they're they're to dispose of the corn to to take care of our economy. So people have become almost modern livestock that they're here to consume as much corn as possible because that's what the Midwestern economy demands. Yeah, no, it's interesting, and this is also something that Michael Pollan talks about extensively, uh, but it's interesting to think about the fact that we're using all these fossil fuels, extracting them, and then uh, basically the end result of that is uh, you know, poisoning our waterways with nitrogen, uh, and wearing all this fat on our bodies, you know, in the form uh, through through the consumption of high fructose corn syrup, uh, it's it's kind of a I'm not sure what the, what the word for it is, but it's it's really quite an astonishing situation. Um, it, it, it really is, but it, you know, there are forces reversing it too, and, and so and, and it's interesting to see how easily it is reversed. Um, I'm just back 
this week from a trip through the Midwest. So I was in those. I was in Iowa and southern Minnesota looking at those miles and miles and miles of cornfields. I know exactly what you're talking about. And there they are again this year, in fact, more so because of the ethanol demand. People have plowed up extra land. But I was at the time working with people who were doing um, grass-fed beef. And they're converting their cornfields into permanent pastures. It's exactly what I've been talking about here. In other words, perennial grasses versus annual grasses. Those permanent pastures convert in a matter of a year or so. They make them highly productive. And without any form of subsidy whatsoever, and with a little bit of clever marketing in the Twin Cities area, they're able to sell their grass-fed beef, which is healthier for you by far because it has omega-3 fats in it, grass-fed does, grain-fed doesn't, because, and they're able to sell that in health food stores as a premium. So they're making more money on that grass-fed beef than they were making on corn by using market forces. And that's the kind of thing that's good news. One, we can revert away from that madness of the corn economy. Two, it can be market-driven. So, in other words, they can make money at it. So we don't have to worry about a lot of subsidy and getting all carried away with government programs. And three is, it's good for, it's good for your health. So you can go out today and help with that conversion. So this is not all theoretical or pie in the sky. This is something that can happen and is happening around the country. Yeah, one of the things that uh, always kind of boggles me is that the more bad news I tend to hear, the more good news I also hear. Um, so I, I guess as things get worse, they also continue to get better, which is, I guess, kind of just this paradox we're going to have to live through through our lifetimes. Um, could you also uh, talk about uh, the U.S. practices of agriculture and you know, globalizing them or expanding them to other places in the world? and what that means uh, for us and for our planet. Uh, you know, everyone talks about the Chinese or the Indians uh, acquiring our driving habits, but nobody talks about them acquiring our eating habits. Is that maybe a more plausible and devastating uh, possibility? Well, it, it's not only plausible, it's happening. I mean, the, the trend's very clear, especially in China, the Chinese are eating meat. And the Chinese are eating grain-fed meat, as we do now. Um, this was something that was was a lot of people worried about 15 years ago. Today it's no longer a worry. It is a fact. The Chinese are, are, are very close to overtaking us in per capita energy consumption as a result. So that habit of eating um, grain-fed meat is spreading across the planet very quickly, um, but it's happening to, in places where affluence is growing, especially in China and the rest of South Asia, and to a certain extent even in India. Uh, and if that happens, then any kind of gains we can talk about in the United States would almost be immediately wiped out. In fact, it looks like they already are. So that, that's the bad news. And then the worst news is, the, of course, the, the long-term spread of the Green Revolution, which began in the 1940s. And at the time, that was really good news in a way in that it staved off starvation in places like India. But it did so with, by adopting the same methods we've used here. So chemical fertilizer use is, 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 is uh, exploded off the charts. So, for instance, where this began in the Yaqui Valley of Mexico, that was the first place where we exported our style of wheat growing in the Green Revolution, they used something like five times as much nitrogen fertilizer as the average Midwestern farmer, and certainly five times more than they need. Um, so that fertilizer use has exploded. Um, 
so th- there's that. But there's also an undercurrent um, and a sophistication growing now in world agriculture among people who are really responsible earlier for the spread of the Green Revolution now understand that we have to do things differently in the developing world. There is, in fact, a call for a doubly, what's called a doubly green revolution. In other words, we're going to grow more food, but we're going to be environmentally sensitive about it. There's a lot of work being done that's figured out ways to do that, to work with orphan crops, to work with native crops as opposed to wheat. And so there are some good things happening in the rest of the world as well. Yeah, and and let's talk about some of these alternatives. Uh, as, as you've written extensively about food systems, uh, one of the things you've stated is that there are little niches in every system, and each individual's, uh, each person's individual charge is to find such niches. Could you explain to people what those niches might be and how to find them? Yeah, one of the, one of the ways we went wrong with industrial agriculture and the Green Revolution is do these one-size-fits-all solutions. So in other words, we, and it was deliberately done that way. I mean, it was not an accident at all. Um, we wanted one kind of wheat that would grow any place in the world, and then you would force the conditions through irrigation and fertilizer to allow that to happen. The antithesis to that approach is to say, no, we need to do what is locally appropriate, not only in terms of what people like to eat, but what will grow there in terms of the weather, um, the cropping system, but also respect things like the parasites and the diseases. So, you know, if you have a lot of, 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 of particular rice disease, rice blast, for instance, in a given area, then you grow crops that are resistant to that. And so we're becoming much more refined in our ability to think about niches, to think about what's appropriate in a small place, and to really to do the kind of science necessary to exploit those niches. And, and that's the very situation I was talking about, for instance, with grass-fed beef in the Midwest. Those people looked for a niche. They said, we don't like doing agriculture this way. What else can we do? They looked at the conditions of the landscape, saying, well, this place grows grass well. It did so when it was a tall grass prairie. And they looked very seriously at cattle, saying, well, the cattle today are wrong for this, but there are varieties of cattle and ways of raising cattle that are correct for this. What do those look like? In some cases, they went back to the 1950s methods and 1950s genetics to do it. And by thinking through the complexity of their area and even thinking about their market, you know, what will people eat in the Twin Cities area, they were able to put together a successful solution that works in their niche, and that's the key. And that's, that's what's really incumbent on all of us. There's no one solution that's going to solve all this. There's no magic bullet. It's a question of inhabiting your landscape. Now, how can an individual do this effectively? What, what advice would you give to someone who's listening to this and says, well, I'd really like to find my niche, but it's all kind of overwhelming. How do I, how do I start? Well, there are a lot of people working on it, and, and I will bet anyone listening to this um, that if you look in your area, you'll already find people working on it, local foodscape ideas and people thinking about local agriculture, local sustainable agriculture. So you plug into that right away. You begin and you say, oh, who else is working on this? Where can I buy these kinds of foods that are either grown locally or grown sustainably in some way? And you, you find you'll get an education pretty quickly that way. You know, it, it's much easier to do this than it was 20 years ago. Um, but also, when you do that, do it with, with a little bit of, uh, of criticism or with a critical eye and simply say, you know, yeah, there's a lot of mythology in farming about, especially even about locally sustainable stuff. So what's really true about this? 
what really works in one way or another. Um, be willing to pursue unconventional approaches to things. Um, I live in Montana, and one of the solutions that I do, that many of my friends do here locally, is to hunt. We, we take venison and we feed ourselves with that. Well, you know, that kind of solution isn't make it a, making it onto uh, kind of a, the national barometer or the, the national headlines. And in fact, it's probably not appropriate in most places. And, and people would object to it. But here it works perfectly, and it's worked that way for a long time. So you know, think about your situation. Think in totality. You know, think about energy. Think about burning wood, for instance, those kinds of things that go on. It's not just about food. And, and, and uh, you, you, use your intelligence. You'll find out that it's, it's, it's a fun process once you get involved in it and try to inhabit your own landscape because it's really quite educational and it's enriching. In the end, it connects you to a place and connects you to your food in a, in a fairly rewarding fashion. Is there anything in this interview that we didn't touch on that uh, you think that's, that's important for people to uh, know about or hear? Well, the one thing I tell people is people uh, have fun with this. And, and I know that runs counter to the, you know, there's this, this gloom and doom that pervades this discussion. And I'm not, I'm not saying that that's not appropriate. There is a lot of gloom and doom there. But we also can't throw out the fact that we're humans, we're part of our culture, and our culture depends on our food in a lot of ways. I mean, well, ceremony, uh, the, the idea of family togetherness, ritual, uh, holidays, all marked by food. And so think of the role that plays, and you don't throw out baby with bathwater. Think about how food enriches your life and, and how you can enjoy this. And you'll find that I think that, that by demanding, first of all, good food, food that you can enjoy, food that's appropriate, that you do some good and at the same time you have a good time. And, and, that, and that's appropriate, too. Well, Richard Manning, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the Agro Innovations Podcast. Uh, I, I uh, especially take to heart your suggestion that people should have fun with this and maybe lay off a little bit on the on the gloom and doom. I think that's a great suggestion. Um, and there's just so much work to be done and so much enjoyment to be gotten from that work uh, that uh, I think it's really great to and helpful to have a reminder from a, from a person like yourself. Well, thanks for having me. That does it for this episode of the Agronovations Podcast. Once again, I'd like to thank Richard Manning for joining us. He's shed a lot of light on many of these issues that are uh, surrounding agriculture and um, some great reminders as to why so many of us uh, have dedicated our time in whatever way to sustainable agriculture and sustainable resource management. We need your help to get the word out about this podcast. If you're a blogger or if you're active in some online forums or a podcaster yourself, uh, please give us a shout-out to other people out there that might be interested in the themes that we talk about on this podcast. I've got a podcast coming up for you about the silvery minnow, which has a local flavor for those of uh, our listeners who are in the Rio Grande Valley in the Albuquerque, New Mexico area, like myself. So that's coming up. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. Saludos. Saludos.